Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... Are you looking to serve God and society? Consider putting your gifts to work as a lawyer. Ave Maria School of Law has been educating faith-filled lawyers for over 20 years. Ave Maria School of Law is committed to training lawyers to use law appropriately around the moral issues of our time. Visit AveMariaLaw.edu to learn more about integrating your faith with a law degree. Looking for a way to build daily prayer discipline? Seen the rise in mindfulness meditation, but not sure if it is possible to meditate in a way that's consistent with your Catholic faith? Just looking for a way to breathe new life into your existing prayer routine? No matter what you're looking for, Hollow is here to help. Hollow is a Catholic prayer and meditation app that helps users deepen their relationship with God through audio-guided contemplative prayer sessions. From meditations on the daily gospel to the rosary to daily examines, Hollow has something for everyone. Hollow is the number one Catholic app in the U.S. It is free to download and has permanently free content, but you can also check out all of the premium sessions for 30 days, risk-free, by signing up at www.hollow.app/breadbox. Welcome to the Will Within podcast. This is your home for shared stories of hope, perseverance, will, and inspiration. Join us today as we share another story that brings to life the underlying beat of our lives. Consider us your virtual friends. Let's get inspired. Welcome to the Will Within Podcast, and I'm your host, Regina Pontus. Happy New Year to everyone. Welcome to 2021. Let's hope and pray that we have a better experience and an end to this pandemic soon. In the interim, I'd like to start off this year by introducing you to a woman by the name of Sally Frischberg. She was born in Poland, and she suffered at the age of eight through the Holocaust. She talks about her experiences being in a barn for several years until she was able to be rescued and they came to the United States and all of the traumatic events that happened in her life. We, we had some glitches while we were recording this, so she starts right off talking about her experiences. So my apologies that you missed the introduction, but uh, without any further ado, we're going to listen to Sally Fishberg's story. It's so inspirational, so moving. I was born in April 1934. Five years later, the war started. We, I don't think that the community was shocked because they feared a war and they were anxious about it. That is all the community. Poland was a Catholic country, it still is a Catholic country. There's nobody else there now. Then there was a a, uh, three and a half million community that was Jewish in Poland. It was the the biggest uh, Jewish community in Europe. So we are uh, uh, occupied in 1939, and the occupiers behave 
very um, in a very civil way. We get three guests into our house who are German officers, and one of them makes a huge difference in our lives, I think, because he is not like other soldiers who likes to go and be with with young people and whatnot. He is apparently the father of children in Germany, and he misses them. And he comes back from headquarters to the house early, and he watches me and my sisters at that time. I had uh, four sisters. Uh, he watches the the last two were twins, and they they didn't make it. But three of us made it, and we are alive today I'm and sorry. celebrating every day. Uh, at any rate, the gentleman I want to credit with what's due him befriended my father. And the two of them spent evenings playing chess and talking because you know that Yiddish, which is what Polish Jews spoke, they spoke Polish and Yiddish. Uh, Yiddish is a, an offshoot of German in a way. And so they understood each other very, very well. And those conversations, I am convinced, help save our lives because no one, no one could imagine what was coming. No one. But Mr. Arnold, the German soldier, told my father that to simply follow orders and do what we're told was not enough. It will not save us. You must do something to to save your family. If you don't do something, you will surely die because this is a war that will kill the innocent first and uh, you're in grave danger. And I think as a result of that kind of a warning, my father had a different view than others. And by the time we were, we lived with the, German occupation till 1942, from 39 to 42. But in 42, the effort to kill us all quickly was strengthened. They, they became impatient to do it. There, there were many Jews now that they were in Russia also and in, and in Poland and all over Europe. There were many Jews and they just had to kill them. They were committed to that task. And uh, my father remembered the warnings of Mr. Arnold, who by now had been shipped out to the Russian front. And as a result, of my father's new awareness because of Mr. Arnold, we did not go to the trains when resettlement was announced. Resettlement meant 
that we were supposed to meet at train stations and cooperate because they were taking us east. And in the east, life was much more mm. promising. There were jobs, there were better homes and schools and health and care. And oh, they they presented a very promising picture. And my father said, no, we're not going. And he informed everybody he could reach by mouth because we had no communication uh, opportunities. Mm -hmm. It was a rather backward country and mm -hmm. um, there was no way of informing. And it had to be a secret. You couldn't be open about it. So one Jew informed another that we're not going and that my father thinks that no one should go to the train station. And the question came up of, well, where are we going to go? If we don't do what we're told, they'll come and shoot us. And my father said, I don't know where we're going to go. None of us knows, but find a place. Find a, a, a remote hiding place and hide there. Any hole that's deep will do. Sally, how old were you when this started happening? In 1942, I was six years old. Okay. No, wait, I was eight years old. So mm -hmm. math was never not my great skill. <laughs> and I know this is simple arithmetic, but I still confuse things. I was eight years old in 42. And um, I remember that the night before resettlement day, we left our home at night. But like all the other Jews, we had nowhere to go. And neighbors would, first, many of them were enthusiastic uh, anti-Semites who were very grateful to the Nazis for killing their Jews. So no one would help. No place was available. We were lost. But we were living in an area that was a farm area. And that was the first saving step. We left our home at night and went on the farms that are at night. They are absolutely empty and dark and no one knows what's going on there. Nothing goes on there because the farmers work hard by day, so they're not there. Mm -hmm. And that's where we wandered around in the farms. Every night, we moved to a new farm, and we kept going. Now, this was August 1942, and it was warm and comfortable. And, I mean, we weren't comfortable with the living conditions, but we weren't freezing cold. and. Uh, it was livable. And uh, in, our fa in our town, everyone did what we did. Everyone. In fact, the Jews all did what we did. Word traveled quickly, and that's what everybody did. The only person in our town that showed up at the train station was my grandfather. My grandfather was a very well-read man 
that was his great passion. He used to love to read. And he believed the stories about the pre-Nazi Germans who were very successful people. Their reputation was something to look up to. It seems to have gotten lost that these people were not ordinary people. They, they were achievers. They were learners. They were teachers. They knew a great many things. But I don't know how much they knew about outrage. What their country led them to was outrageous. So my grandfather shows up at the train station, the only Jew in our community, and he is our first victim. When we return from this dreadful, dreadful period of persecution, our neighbors knew what happened to my grandfather. They told us where he was, and they told us how he was in the lineup where everyone was shot and the people who were coming, the new people, had to, the people that were shot fell into open holes that they were made to dig, not knowing it was their burial place. And my grandfather was one of those who fell into a hole he dug. I'm sorry, but the, I actually went to Dachau when I was 19 and it was just a, such a moving and powerful experience to think of what everybody had to endure back then. I, I'm sorry, I'm not hearing. I you. said, I went to Dachau when yes. I was 18 and I said 19 and it was such a powerful experience. I have never been so moved in my entire life. Just looking down at those, at that whole area and those holes that were dug in. Well, really for me, for me as a child, hearing the neighbors tell what happened to my grandfather when we returned became a fearful thing because they told us that oftentimes the earth that covered the, the fallen victims moved because they were not all were dead. So I imagine that my grandfather was buried alive and uh, it was not a comfortable thing for me to imagine as you can mm -hmm. picture but that was my first lost relative and my grandfather was living with it's interesting that my two grandmothers bo both died during the war just before mm -hmm. the displacement from home okay. and my father used to be so grateful that his mother didn't have to suffer that she was spared that suffering by having died before and being buried like a human being it's meant a lot to him so my grandfather is left living with my uncle naftali my father's youngest brother Two were in America, and Naftali was still in Poland. He was a very special uncle. He taught me numbers, and he taught me the alphabet. 
and he taught me the Hebrew alphabet, the Aleph Bates. And uh, then I'll try to life. make your life normal. He what? He tried to make your life somewhat normal. He tried, yes. And I couldn't go to school because as soon as they came in, Jewish children were disallowed. Mm. They could not come to school. And I was ready for school in 1940. So too bad I couldn't go. So he tried to teach me and he was very... He was a very gentle, loving teacher, and I remember him so very well. At any rate, he told my father that he will come with us. He said, Dad is not willing to run away. Dad thinks we're all fools, that the German people are a civilized nation, a Christian nation, that they will not mistreat us. This is what my grandfather believed from his readings. Mm-hmm. As we know, it, was, it turned out to be different. And my f- uncle Naftali wanted to run away with us into the fields. But my father said to him, no, you may not come with us. I forbid it. You are young and strong and smart and you know the lay of the land. You will save yourself if you try. We will just handicap you. You must try because one day your survival might save others in the future. So for me, trying to teach young people is a matter of fulfilling my Uncle Naftali's abilities because he was caught. And he died. When they caught him, they asked him if he had a final wish. And he said he wanted to be with his God for a minute. And the the Polish neighbors told us this. And they gave him the time. And then they murdered him. They shot him. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. The, um, so we are in the fields and it's getting colder and less comfortable. And the question is, how can we possibly survive in open fields? We go every night to a different field and we are, we're surviving, but we see what's coming. And miracle of miracles, one night we hear a whistle and my mother and her brother, her brother and his family were with us. These two families had children. And so they were together. They said, whatever happens to us, let it happen. But at least we have each other. And uh, we, we walked through fields every night, a different field. That was important. And then one night we hear a whistle. And the wonder is, who is it? Why? Should we whistle back? It might be someone who wants to betray us. We better not. But on the other hand, it might be someone who wants to help us. Should we take a chance? Mm -hmm. And they bet all they had on the chance. They whistled back. And into their arms came Stanislav Grucholsky, the man who undertook saving us. 
he tried all kinds of things, but couldn't couldn't do anything because he had no means. Like he said, they took everything from me. I can't build, I can't make a hole, I can't do anything. So when it got cold, he wound up taking his, us to his home. At night, he walked us all. We were two families. Uh, between us, there were still, uh, um, I, one of my youngest twin died, but now the older twin was still with us. And so we were four and my uncle had three, seven children. He took care of us in his attic for two years. Mm. And it wasn't a pretty picture. We were lice infested. We were very hungry because during the war, it's hard to get food. And the winter we were freezing and the summer we were dying of thirst because if he went to the middle of the town with his buckets to get water, the neighbors would notice that he's coming too often for water and they would begin to raise suspicion and that you could not have. So we were up there for two years. Our lost souls were my baby sister, Faggy, when she showed signs of death, my mother and father packed her in a little basket, wrapped her up, and they walked her to our native town. And they put her on the doorstep of the church. My father had been friendly with the priest because he was a nice man. And we suspected that he would take care of my sister, and he did. He gave her to a young couple to raise, and they picked, cooked up a story of who this baby is. Everyone believed the story. Everything was fine. But my baby sister was too far gone. She died. And so we never saw her again. I'm so sorry. The next one to, to die was my little cousin. He too couldn't, couldn't take it and he died. He is resting next to the house where we were hidden. Mm. And after him, his mother, who was a very strong, stately lady, died. And she's resting next to her son. So we lost three. And we, when we came there, we were seven children and four adults is 11. And now we are without those three, but the Russians come in and save us. Had they not come in when they did in 1944, in the summer of 44, we would have all gradually perished lost our lives but because they came when they did we survived and we returned to a, when when they occupied the area we returned to our old home do you remember that day it was what do you remember that day oh the date uh the date. i know the it date. was the summer of 44 but I do not know the date. However, 
the church has the records. I've been back mm. as an American. I've been back. And the, the priest was very kind and going over everything with me and writing down dates and such. And I hid it mm. so well, I can't find it. Do you remember the day that they um, liberated you? No. The actual day. I mean, no, the day the soldiers came know, I don't remember the day, but I re I remember what was happening. Yes. yes we were, oh, we were watching the uh, Russians invading the town through the cracks oh in God. the wall of the of the attic that we were in. Oh we God. were watching the whole affair. Oh and we did not go down until nighttime. And at night, Mr. Grucholsky, our... Uh, our savior said to us, this is our private story. You and I have a private affair. Don't ever, ever, ever mention it to anyone. Now you might wonder why he's ashamed of his heroism. He's a, he's a genuine hero. And the reason was that he was afraid of the anti-Semites who would get even with him or his family mm. for saving Jews. That's why he, he didn't want it known. So many years later, we made it to America because they, the anti-Semites threw us out. So Sally, tell me about your um, convergence over from Europe over to the United States finally. So now we're leaving home because we, we are being uh, threatened. And where do we go? Well, we have nowhere to go. Just as before, during the invasion, we had nowhere to go, no help from anyone. We went to the fields. That's where we survived for a period of time. And we were going back there and the weather was good. This was summer. 1944 or 45. I don't know how soon after liberation this all materialized. So we set out on the road and we're on the in the fields and the question is, where are we going? We have nowhere to go. There's no goal here. Mm -hmm. And my father said, we're going west. Well, to me, that was totally meaningless. I thought west was a place. West was the direction. We were heading west. We left Poland at night. We, we crossed right. the, uh, uh, you know, during a war, you can't just go from country to country. Mm -hmm. You're not allowed to do that. So at night, we smuggled our way from Poland to Czechoslovakia. In Czechoslovakia, we noticed that there is sort of a, a, feeling among people to go west and there was movement in that direction and we said we're going to go where the where the, the masses are going mm -hmm. now the masses consisted of homeless people wow. some were survivor jews most were not most were people who lost their homes during the war there were, were these encampments people. that you were in? Is it what? Were they encampments that you were in along the way? Encampments. A camp. 
there were no camps yet. That okay. became a reality when the powers that be, that is the, the uh, victorious powers, realized that they had endless people on their hands oh. who had no homes, who had no place to go, who had no food, no clothing, nothing. So you were literally on the street. So we were on the streets <laughs> and we slept in the bombed out building. Mm. And if there were holes in the ceilings and they and it rained and the water came in, we moved out of the way of the water. We looked mm. for dry corners and there were all kinds of people. And would you believe we all got along? We had only our homelessness in common. Mm -hmm. In most cases, we, we didn't know who was Jewish, who was not. And then as we came to uh, closer to German uh, uh, territory, we realized that there were Germans among us who were running away and pretended to be Jews. They thought they weren't recognized because they were understanding us and we understood them. But the truth is, although it, the, the languages are connected, Jews, Jewish, Yiddish is a, a product of the German language. But if you know Yiddish, you'll never be fooled. You know it's German, not Yiddish. So we knew that they were runaway Germans, but we, we just embrace them you're trying to survive at this point so it's no yes yeah. we were all surviving because we were looking out for each other right. the food is over there today or over there we were mm -hmm. telling each other and we, so we from Czechoslovakia we went to Hungary and it was the same pattern and from there to uh, uh, to uh, Romania same pattern and from there to Austria. And here we encounter difference. Mm -hmm. the, the Austrian people, the Austrian people were very anxious to convince us that they, they didn't know what was going on. They were kind of like following us to tell us that they didn't know. Nobody knew had we known this would not have happened and all that stuff. We never believed them because we felt that you had to be blind and deaf not to know what's going on during, during the war. Mm -hmm. At any rate, eventually, is the only word I can think of. eventually we made our way to Germany and we wound up in Munich, which was the city from which Mr. Arnold came. Remember Mr. Arnold? Yep. The German okay. officer. Who, who taught my father the facts of life when it, where the war was concerned. Well, my father had his address and my father went looking in Munich oh. for Mr. Arnold mm. and he came back so disappointed, so hurt, so unhappy because he said, there is no Mr. Arnold. There are just rocks all over the place. There are no buildings. There are no people. The few souls that were wandering around in Munich were kind of lost. They did, the German people that were there didn't know what happened to them. You know, to go from victory 
to total defeat is not right. easy. Right, right. At any rate, once in Munich, the, the American spirit took over and I fell in love with the American people because they did not ignore us. Up to, I'm not blaming the Russian uh, uh, victors who ignored us because they got badly hurt. I understand that. But somehow they didn't even show warmth, nothing. The Austrian uh, experience, we were under the uh, rule of the uh, British uh, soldiers, equally uninterested, very formal, very British, no smile, no, no welcoming look, nothing. But in Munich, the, the, the American soldiers, oh, what a change. Really? What a change. I have never forgotten it. And this is two years after you were liberated, right? They, this is now, I believe, 45 or 46. Okay. And the, the warmth of the American effort to deal with us as human beings who were unfortunately in bad shape mm -hmm. was remarkable. They put, they took back, we were now in the barracks of an old German army camp. They took one of the barracks and they made it into a gathering place of clothing that came from the United States. You know how sometimes in the United States we hear these people are in trouble, give what you can. Mm -hmm. Well, we got what America could oh, give. Yeah. It was used, but it was only warmer for that reason. Right, right. It was the difference between American people and other people is extraordinary. Nobody believes it. And I can't explain it better than I'm doing now. Yeah, no, it's the will to help others and the will to, like you said, it's American spirit to yes. thrive and to be the best you can. Yeah. Yes. And it's such an apparent spirit to someone who's in need of help. Right. It, is, it is remarkable. At any rate, besides giving us what they could and feeding us in the barracks, <clears throat> And providing us with, us with with blankets and things in other barracks, you know, they try to set up some kind of a a uh, the living conditions should be acceptable. We ate in this barrack, we slept in this one. They, they try to create a hotel space where there was none. At any rate, they also try to provide social work, and I remember a a little group came to see us and said to my parents by way of an interpreter, where do you come from? And we said, we're runaway Jews from Poland. Well, Poland is your rightful home. Do you want to go back there? And my parents jumped up and said, never, never. We will mm -hmm. never go back there. They found out from my parents that my father had two brothers in the United States. And they said, you have brothers in America? My father said, yes. They said, where? We said, oh, we don't know. For 12 years, there was no connection. So now 12 years later, my, my father didn't have it in writing anyway. Mm -hmm. 
but he said he, they were in New York. And the soldiers figured out that that's New York. New York, yeah. And they, they uh, said to my father, my parents, don't worry, we'll find your brothers. Mm. And we wondered whether they would or could. We didn't know what happened in those 12 years. Well, in no time at all, they came back and they said, okay, we found your brothers. Wow. Now, the, this same story comes to, from another angle, because when we finally got here, my uncle loved to tell the story of one night hearing noise on his porch in Brooklyn. And when he went out, he said the army was there. There were people, there were representatives from the army, from the Navy, from the Marines. Everyone was there. And my uncle got scared and said, what happened? Why are you here? And they said, do you know that you have family that survived the war in Europe? And my uncle said, no, you don't understand. My father had little children and those were the people who died first. And so we don't expect them to have survived. And the soldiers took out our names and showed them. These, these are my, my, that's my brother, my oh sister, my their children. And the soldier How said, moving. do you want them? And my uncle said, but of course we want them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they gave him a sheet telling him where to go and what to do. Wow. And as a result of this, we were on the second boatload of refugees to arrive in New York Harbor on November 10th, 1946. Do you remember that, seeing the From Statue of Liberty? Oh, my goodness. I didn't know about the Statue of Liberty, but the personnel on the ship kept insisting, look, look, they, they were talking English, but they were pointing. So we understood what to do. And we looked and we saw a lady with with her lamp in the yeah, yeah. We didn't know then that she was our welcoming the part. freedom, yeah, yeah. Yes. When, when, you found, when you figured that out years later, you must have been so moved. Like, oh, my God. personnel on the ship were so kind to us. They, they understood that kindness was what we needed. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, when we landed... Before we landed, I had a lovely experience. You and I are connected by Bill, uh, Bill's last name. I always forget it. Tingling, tingling right? Yeah, yes, yes. Well, the first time that Bill Tingling heard me tell the story, he was very touched by this little episode on the boat. When we got on the boat, we discovered that every European language was talked by the people on the boat. And the personnel only spoke English. They didn't know any of those blah, blah, blah languages. And uh, as we got on the boat, I was very quick to jump on a bunk that I liked. Don't ask me why, but I liked it. I jumped on it. I sat down on it. And I know I must have been smiling from ear to ear because this woman came over me, over to me, and she said to me, you dirty little Jew, who do you think you are to take the bunk I wanted? I want that bunk and I'm going to have it. Hitler should have killed all of you. 
that if I have my way, you're dead. Dead. And I understood what she said. And I didn't like it. And I was frightened by her. But the matron on the ship was a black lady dressed in a white uniform who gave directions by pointing to us. She couldn't speak our languages, but she pointed her intentions and we all followed obediently. Mm -hmm. And when she noticed that there's some kind of interaction, she came because it was her right to know. And, but she didn't understand. However, she looked at the two of us back and forth for a couple of minutes. And then she came over to me, put her arms around me, wrapped me with her arms and cradled me mm. to comfort me because she saw that I was a lost kid. And, right. you know, woman is, is abusing me. Exactly. Right. right. And... She lifted my spirits oh. from the ground all the way up. It's just the kindness I, of souls that just keeps you going, you know? Yes. And it's I just remember, a wonderful thing to hear. I remember it. Mm. I always will. And when Bill heard me tell this story to the school I spoke at, he never forgot it. And we became very good friends mm. as a result of this story. That's wonderful. Yeah. Anyway, I'm the on November 10th, we landed, and the help on the ship was absolutely, well, they were like, they were like family. They smiled at us. They touched mm -hmm. our heads, the kids. They, How old were you now, like 11? Uh, uh, on the ship, I was yeah, 13. Well, oh, you're 13, okay. Right. 13, 13 years old, and when we landed, we were interviewed by what turned out to be The Mirror. There was a newspaper then in New York called The Mirror. And here is the picture. I don't know if you can see it. Oh. They took of the oh. three of us. Oh, yeah. And the next morning oh, it appeared in the paper and my uncle saw it and bought the paper and came running oh, home very excited. <laughs> very excited. But my aunt said... Never mind the picture, she said. You, we have to get ready for school tomorrow. Mm. I have to go to school. Start a life. Yeah. Uh, school. Yeah, you need to start a life. Yeah. We've right never in school before. Uh, yep. Every, I had an attempt twice. It, I didn't last the day because I felt the hostility. I felt the rejection. I felt the disapproval of me. And I hated it. And I explained that I can't go back there. And my parents didn't make me. But those, my, well, my one was in my village of Uzhe before the Holocaust started, when Jewish kids were forbidden to come to school. Mm -hmm. And the other one was after the Holocaust, when we wound up in Germany, and my parents saw that we'll be delayed there, we won't make very good connections too soon. So they decided that they didn't want us to grow up to be stupid and they're going to take us to school in the town nearby. Mm -hmm. And they took us and the kids rejected us. Wow. And so I, once you were in the United States, where did you end up going to school? Well, in the United States, I, we didn't want to go. And I, my, it was, I was the oldest of the, of the three of us. 
and my uh, sisters expected me to raise some objections, but my my aunt was very intimidating, and I went. And I discovered the very first time arrived, I arrived in school that there was warmth and smiles and people coming and young kids my age came over, took my hand, took me to the gym, took me wherever I belonged. There was shop. Then the boys took shop. They yeah. delivered me to the shop. This was, they made all the arrangements. I had no idea what was going on. Such a I contrast not, between what you experienced oh, over in Europe. That I was yeah. cared for so much. I wasn't used to this. I, yeah. I thought, gee, I'm important. People care for me. Imagine that. Yeah. And when you got here and you stayed with your aunt and uncle, did they have children? Yes, we stayed with my aunt. I, we stayed with my aunt and uncle in their home, but we were three kids and they had three kids. Six kids in that home was too many. Yeah. And it, it, we, we felt the, the strain. Our connection to our cousins was physical. We pulled each other's hair. We, we were kids. Yeah. And behaved like kids. But we didn't know how to talk to each other because we we were not, we had no language in common, and that was part of the difficulty. But my younger uncle gave the uh, separation pay to a landlord under the table; it wasn't allowed, and he got us an apartment. It was very difficult to do. Do you hear me? Yes. Okay. Yeah. It was very difficult to get an apartment after the war. The soldiers coming home wanted to build families and they were competing with the people who are arriving because they wanted to have a home. And it was it, after the war, the competition for a place to live was extraordinary. My uncle gave up his separation pay, got us a, a an apartment and uh, we began to adjust to living as a family in an apartment. My father got a job almost the next day that he came. And he probably the, the uh, uh, man who gave him the job also was uh, felt that he should do something for this man. When you started going to school did and you're getting 13, 14, did faith play a part of this at all in your journey? I mean, with all the struggles that you endured, how or if did faith play a part? Well, it do doesn't play the same part in everyone in every members of 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 that experience. experience. Yeah. It, it, it's very different for me. It turned out to be a, an issue, you know. In the displaced persons camps, we just hung around doing nothing, and we were in those camps from. 45 to 47 and you all you do was listen to other survivors and many of them were fearfully hurt their their spouses were killed their children were killed their parents were killed they had no one in the world and they were very angry with god and 
uh, in many cases, they rejected God. Mm. And I, I was a witness to all that. And I guess my age was, at this point, I'm 13 years old, and I understand some things. And I begin to feel great sympathy for these people who are hurting so badly. And I begin to feel the way they do. And therefore, my belief, my faith is, there's a great deal of doubt there. And my relationship with God is one where I argue with him all the time. Mm -hmm. I argue with God. If something goes wrong, I want to know why. And I'm not getting any answers, but I'm not stopping at the questioning. Mm -hmm. So, but um, not all people are affected the same way. And my sisters, for example, take for granted that my parents knew what they were doing and that they believed the way my parents did. I gave my father trouble by asking questions that he couldn't answer, nobody can. And my father would say, you don't ask questions like that. And I said, why? Because you don't know the answer. Mm-hmm. So we, but we had a, a good relationship in spite of that. I was very fond of my father. And I was going to say, that's normal at that time anyway, regardless of whether you're, you know, brought up with a religion or not. But the question. Yes, but I, I, I have grown into maturity and now into mm-hmm. old age. Mm-hmm filled with doubt as opposed to filled with faith. I have grave doubts about everything I hear and see. But it's okay. I don't mind. I I can live with this. I am I am a doubter. Maybe a doubter, but I'm glad you are open to even if it's um in anger or frustration, you allow for communication with the God. Oh. I, I have tremendous affection for the human being. And it's part of the same thing. I say, what, did, what do we do to deserve a world which sometimes is so mean, so bad, so hurtful? Why do people have to suffer from illnesses that are so terrible? What, who, who commands this? And I argue. <laughs> Nobody listens, but that's- <laughs> we're all listening. We've got a wonderful story. Um, tell me about college. Did you end up going to college? And how did you become a teacher? Because you were a teacher at oh, some point, right? Yes, I was. I went to high school and I was getting endless help from all the people, that, all the teachers that knew me were helping me. And among those teachers was a young boy, a year older than I who took the job of helping me in math because I was a poor math student. And he saw to it that I got very good marks on all the exams that I took. And then when I was 20 and he was 21, we were married. Oh, wow, okay. And I often say to, when I talk to a class and I see them getting sad, I say, but you know, there's a blessing here. Mm And I tell them that something that appeared so bad to me, I'll never learn math. I'll never graduate school. I'll never be able to go on. And, you know, the usual kind of uh, fear. I said, it turns out to be the best thing that ever happened. 
he would have never paid attention to mm -hmm. me, but he had to help me in math. <laughs> Is that the handsome man sitting next to you? Yeah, he he was a class high above me. No. But the question is, is that the man sitting next? To oh yes, of course. <laughs> we been, we've been married for sixty four years. Wow! Congratulations, you two. That's wonderful. I've been married sixty five. I don't know where she. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> Usually, it's the guy that gets confused. You you two are a delight. I'm the math student. She's the math student. I'm the teacher. <laughs> <laughs> so tell yeah. me. <laughs> When did you decide that, um, fast forward, when you started having children, you decided that you wanted to not just keep your story silent, but to educate your children? I knew that there was something wrong in keeping a secret from my children, because I really feel very strongly that parents and children should share what they understand, what they like, what they don't like. They should be honest with each other throughout their lives. And I just couldn't bring myself to, to open my mouth. But I had an extraordinary chairman when I finally became a teacher. I had an extraordinary chairman. He was of German heritage. He was brought up in the Lutheran tradition, but he was not a practitioner of the faith, but he admitted that he was a Lutheran trained boy. And now he was the chairman of the English department at Fort Hamilton High School. And he found out somehow, I don't know how, I, I had a very close friend, Eleanor O'Connor, whom I once told that I, I said to her at lunch one day, I have to finish this. And she said, why do you have to? You're always dieting. You don't have to throw it out. Mm -hmm. And I said, I can't throw out food. She said, why not? And I said, because I was starved for two years. Yeah, right. You don't know where your and, next meal is. And she said, what do you mean you were starved? And I said, I'm a survivor of the Holocaust. And I was starved in an attic for two years. Mm -hmm. And Eleanor went, <gasps> and she told John O'Connor. And John O'Connor, my chairman, started coming down to have lunch with us. And he wanted to know this, that, and the other thing. And then he said to me one day, you know, he said, if I had someone like you willing to teach a course on the Holocaust, I would underwrite it. And the kids could get credit for either English as a literature course or for history because we have to we have to tackle the history if we touch this he said but i have no one who knows what you know and i i just paid no attention and he said it again the next day at lunch and i said to him you know if i could i would offer to do it but i can't he said why can't you i said because i don't know what the hell happened to us and why I didn't read about it. I didn't study about it. I don't want to know about it. I want to forget it. Mm -hmm. And and this was part of forgetting it so my kids don't have to suffer. And he said to me, that's the wrong way to go. You'll never forget it. This is not easily, easily forgettable. You have to deal with it. You have to confront it. 
You have to try and understand it. And uh, I said, but I don't know anything. You want me to stand in front of a class like a dummy? And he said, no, but I know that you're young enough to learn if you want to. And that was a challenge. So I went to Brooklyn College, College, which is right near me. I live not too far from there. And I met with a, 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 a Yafa Elia. I don't know if you ever uh, read about her, but she wrote two books on the Holocaust. She was a survivor. She became a college professor. And I, I met with her and I said, you'll understand my situation. What can I do? She said, well, what we can do is, I said, you, you have to remember, I'm the mother of two small children and the mother of two aging parents and the wife of a very hardworking pharmacist. I, there's a limit to how much time I have. Right. And she said to me, I think I can make a plan so you can do, you can do the things you have to and you can learn the things that you need to learn. And she wrote letters for me to all the social study teachers at Brooklyn College, explaining what's going on here and saying to them, she cannot take uh, exams. She cannot write, write term papers. She cannot do the things you ordinarily expect, but she can prepare to teach a high school class on what she experienced. And the person in charge will be her chairman. He would be willing. This is all really his idea. And they worked it out. I used to go to whatever class I pleased. I used to write my notes very enthusiastically as much as they applied. When they stopped applying, I would just walk out the back door mm. and ask the teacher, when are you coming back to this or that and the other thing? And they all they all advised me. They all recommended books to me. They, everybody became involved in my little effort. And uh, one September, when we returned to school, I went to John uh, uh, Gephardt and I said to him, okay, I'm willing to do it. I've learned a lot thanks to your encouragement and I'm willing to teach others. And he said, okay, let's give it a try. How long have you been doing that? Uh, this would have been sometimes in the early 70s. And you did until when? Oh, I did this for 20 years. I was teaching about well, that's that. That's wonderful. And to educating uh, the new youth. And I have to tell you, some of the people that I had in classes 50 years ago every so often still get in they touch contact with you. That's awesome. You must and have they, really touched their hearts with the story. I, I no doubt did because they're touching my heart with the little notes they write me. Yeah. You've changed my view of the world. <laughs> you have made a better person of me. You have made me realize that we are all human beings who must help each other, which is my goal. So I, you're still doing it to this day? Oh, now I do it at the museum or by invitation. 
schools that invite me have no trouble with my showing up because I have a helper. The, the husband of 65 years, <laughs> 64, 65 but years. By his side. He is my driver because I get lost if I drive <laughs> off on my own. But yeah. he takes me all over and he thinks I should do it and he will help. And we well, do. I'm sure your children were very moved by what you experienced. And like I said, you can they can teach your grandkids well, that stuff. My well. children said they always knew something funny was going on. My my daughter is younger than her brother. So when she was about five years old, she said to her brother, Jack, Nani saw Hitler on the screen and she's of the TV and she spit at him. Why did she do that? Jack said to his sister, Leslie, I don't know why she did it, but I know a book that has the answer. And he stood on a chair and he reached for Mein Kampf. Oh, yeah. And he handed it to her and he said, maybe you should read this book. She was five years old. Well, uh... <laughs> but children have their view of things. Yeah. And the fact that I found out about this joke, I realized that they wanted to know, that they were eager to know, and that I needed to share with them. And I, I used to take them with me to classes. <laughs> I would put them in a seat in the end of the auditorium or wherever I, wherever I spoke, and they listened. And then we came home and we talked about it, and it was all okay. So life is good for you now. You do have some wonderful life experiences. That's great. I'm, I'm so glad you're sharing your story so, so that others can learn from the mistakes that we had from the past. And I want young people to realize that if Stanislav Grocholsky, living where and when he lived, was able to save 15 out of 12 out of 15 lives mm. then what can't we americans do right. we are free no one is going to hurt us because we're trying to help others mm -hmm. we can we can make this world a heavenly place right. but we're not trying yeah we need to get back to that listen i end every one of my conversations with um, the person giving me their motto. Do you have a motto you live by? Motto? I don't know if I, what I what I believe can be said as a motto, but I believe that that all human beings are truly equal. They have the same needs. They have the same weaknesses. They are their natures are human, which mm -hmm. is a common thing, and. If they realize that, then they would treat each other with greater kindness and understanding. But instead, the rich think that there's no one like them, and the clever think that there's no one like them, and all that nonsense. The truth is, we are first and foremost human beings. Those mm -hmm. other things don't matter. Right. Right. And and, and it's necessary in this day and age when the dangers are very apparent 
we can destroy the planet. We should embrace a different kind of attitude. Mm -hmm. We should not carry this, this belief that our way is right and the other people are wrong. No, we're all human beings. We're all in this together. Yes. Yeah. What well, happened? Sally, what? you have been an absolute delight. I have loved having this conversation with you. I apologize for any of the glitches that we might have experienced throughout, uh, but it was so totally worth it. You and your husband are absolutely adorable. And I can, you know, I'm so glad I could do any little part to get your story across because you are an inspiration. When it's available, will you let us know? so we? I can will be. You will be the first to know. Thank you. So Where thank do you live? Where do you live? I live in Arlington, which is Cambridge, right next to Boston. Oh. So, yeah, with my Boston. Pack the car and have it. Yeah. You know the Boston accent? And yeah. I don't. But my, my <laughs> buddy. I recognize you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much again for doing all of this. And I wish you God's blessings in everything. And I wish you the same. And I hope that you and I and people like us who want to do better and to make the world better for all of us will succeed. That's Thank you. My but oh, I forgot one thing. How do you want people to contact you? Are they able to contact you if they want to chat with you about or ask you to speak? They are welcome to write to me on my at our email address, kfrischberg at aol.com. So it's k f r i s h b e r g at aol.com. Well, that's perfect, Sally. Uh, you're a delight. You're wonderful. Thank you so much for everything and Godspeed to both of you. Thank you and the same to you. All right, bye. Many thanks for Sally for sharing her amazing story with us. It really touches at your heart to realize what people and humanity have gone through and how we're actually potentially going to be experiencing that if we don't get back to the way we should be and what God has chosen us to be, to help one another and to serve one another. So many thanks again to Sally. And next month, I'm looking forward to talking to the newly installed Bishop Byrne. And he is in the Springfield, Massachusetts Diocese. And he's written a wonderful book titled Five Things. And we talk about those five things. I've got five questions. And it'll be exciting talking to him. He is hysterical. You get a kick out of him. He has a wonderful YouTube by the same name, Five Things. He actually converted it into a, a book because it was so successful. So thanks again for being here. And I really do appreciate it. If you're interested in talking to me or if you're interested in communicating with us, I'm reached at the Will Within Podcast at gmail.com. Feel free to email me because I'd love to hear from you. We read everything possible that comes in, and I'm always interested in sage advice and moving forward with some wonderful, inspiring guests. So until next time, my Will Within family, be blessed. <laughs>